to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. If you're going to follow your hero's journey and be committed to principles like truth and freedom and our mutual humanity, your path will inevitably take you far and wide. And once you leave the well-worn path that everyone knows, you start to pick up the scent of the mystic's trail. Why have the mystics always led the way in our understanding of ourselves and our history? Well, for one, they are fearless explorers of all things human. They are not confined by orthodox or cultural norms. They say, do, and read and research things that are uncomfortable. And they help draw patterns for the rest of us, sketching out all the things they're noticing. The good ones seem to be able to point to something that is both timeless and eternal and is extremely relevant to the landscape that we find ourselves in today. When lies and deception and krivda, to use my guest's vernacular today, are the order of the day, keeping alive what is deeply human is the task of the mystic and the seer. My guest today is one such human, a woman who has done a tremendous amount of work to understand who we are and where we might be going, and she's written a very important book that we will talk about today. Some of our talk about the Old Testament might be upsetting to some of you, I get that. For mystics, it is important to look at all the clues as to who we are, and the Bible has some important ones, especially when viewed mythically and through the eyes of a Gnostic. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation and connection as much as I did. My guest today is an author, anthropologist, linguist, and mystic. Anna Retort is the author of Krivda, God Tricks Against the Matrix, and is a kindred spirit living in rural Thailand. Here's my interview with author Anna Retort. Okay, I am here with Anna Retort, author, thought leader, weaver of tapestry of wisdom, Anna Retort. Anna, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tony, and it's a great honor to be talking to uh, lots of men in the base camp and uh, the women who are interested in what the men listen to in the base camp. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you you wrote a great book that I came across called Krivda, The God Tricks Against the Matrix, and uh, it caught my attention. I think the, I think the matrix is the word that caught my attention, but also I was like, what is Krivda? Uh, and then once I started digging into the book, I was like, oh my God, this woman is like bringing in all of this Gnosticism and these this ancient history. And before we get started, I thought I'd, I'd give the listeners a couple of definitions before we get out of the gate. And then I want to ask you to start with, uh, what is Krivda? Uh, and what's your definition? But to start with, since we're going to be talking a bit about extraterrestrials and your definition of ETs is, or that in the book you say there's a strong, there's strong evidence of their close involvement in human affairs now and since a very long time ago. They operate interdimensionally in ways inaccessible to most humans. I totally love this definition and I completely agree with it. I would use it myself that way. And then Gnostic, which we've done a number of episodes on Gnosticism and, and Gnostics. Um, you said a worldview of the centuries immediately before and after the life of Jesus as expressed in the Nag Hammadi Nag Hammadi scriptures, and involves specifically the Gnostic notion of the demiurge or imposter. And uh, we'll be talking a bit about that. And then the last one is the matrix, which is in the title of the book. It's what caught my attention. And in the book, you say this word is flagged here in order 
for it emphatically not be used in the current dominant sense. And that also caught my eye because I'm like, I everybody knows I throw around that word all the time to sort of uh, uh, talk of, you know, shorthand this kind of uh, false reality or, or, or this, 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 you know, this reality that the media builds and it sticks to our consciousness and, uh, and a reference to the movie and all of the paradoxes and the metaphors of the movie. So I definitely want to talk to you about that and why that is a sort of a warning about that word, but, um, we'll get to that in just a bit, but I just wanted to start off by asking you about how you came to write the book. How long did it take you? Because it's a, it's a big book packed with a lot of gnosis and a lot of wisdom. And what is Krivda? Where did that come from? And what is it? Well, I'll start with Krivda, which I first must commend you for rolling the R because without the rolled <laughs> R, it doesn't quite have that, 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 that oomph to it. Um, so Krivda is it, it's it's a word that is no longer used very much in Russian. It's um, krivda. The root kriv means crooked. Now, the story of how I got this word is, is really important to me because it was one of the major energy drivers. It gave me a lot of energy for writing the book. Mm-hmm. You know, the book isn't just, uh, you know, stuff that I've picked up from other authors or stuff from my own knowledge. It takes, it takes a particular drive to write the book, the consistency, you know, of writing every day. So I had this excellent Russian friend who, to whom I started talking about, you know, what the book was about. And he said, Oh, do you know the word Krivda? And I kind of looked at him and said, no, but Kreve is crooked. So does it mean crooked truth? And he said, yay, <laughs> because it is derivative from Pravda. This is the really important thing, yeah. not just about this word pair, but generally we need to take it for granted that the word and the world starts with the good thing and that the bad thing is a derivative from the good thing. Mm. As a basic philosophical principle, this is what Krivda has taught me. You start off with Pravda, which is the ancient concept of truth and justice as one single concept of the ancient Russians. Truth and justice. Like they're not synonymous, they are one concept. It's difficult Mm -hmm. for us to understand this. But you cannot have justice without truth. You can't have truth without justice. So if Pravda is the original ethical uh, um, embodied sense of what is right. On that basis, you can understand that when things start going a little bit um, not so right, mm-hmm. they're going to go a little bit crooked. And so you're going to start having krivda, which is introducing crookedness into something that is otherwise pravda, that is otherwise true and just. So, you know, this would be an interesting way of understanding the genesis of how evil evil creeps, creeps into a, you know, an otherwise good situation, paradigm or whatever. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when, you know, the concept of crooked truth to me is so much more powerful and I think real than opposing lies to truth. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of, it's the middle ground that can go all the way to the lie. If 
if Pravda is 0% evil, evil, 0%, you know, um, uh, false, falsehood, and you put it on the scale all the way to 100, which would be the pure lie, you've got Krivda, which modulates between 0 and 100. Right. Okay? And the Krivda is much more troublesome for good people who can probably recognize an outright lie for what it is. Right. But when you've got truth with poisoned with elements of untruth, yep. okay, this is where the word magic can happen, where, um, well, where deceit is going to flourish. Right. So, you know, krivda can generally be translated as deceit. But when I received the word, I knew that this was going to be the title, even though, well, nobody in the English-speaking world will know the word Krivda. So, you know, it's not going to be a very good selling point for the book. Right. But no, I mean, since this is such a powerful, even in the sound of it, it's such a powerful vector, to my sense, mm -hmm. of the reality of deceit in its various modulations and forms and what have you. Um, I figured, yeah, well, Krivda, that, you know, it gave me the power that 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 ancient etymological and and um, and even phonetic the 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 energy of the sound, which helped propel me to write the book. And so, to answer your other question, I wrote the first draft in approximately nine months, um, and then I took another nine months to do the read a rewriting of pretty much everything and a number of edits. Uh, so, yeah, overall, uh, that would make, what, a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, Anna, that you bring it up that Krivda is crooked truth. I think that's one of the things that people are challenged with because I think the mind wants to say immediately say, is this true or not? There's this kind of bifurcation or this, this, they, it's difficult to weed through deception when there's a, there's some truth in it. So enough truth, maybe to make you believe that the whole thing is true all the while hiding um, elements that are not true or that are working against you uh, working against humanity. I think that, um, you know, depending on the day, I think humanity is is gullible, or you know, we've been taken advantage of by by you know entities that have very sophisticated means of deceiving us. And um, this goes back to the whole Gnostic theme uh, that uh, around the demiurge, and this is this is a central Gnostic belief. The Gnostics were sounding loud and clear that there was spiritual wickedness in high places. And for Gnostics, that meant uh, this imposter God, God with a lowercase g, you, you're, you're careful to distinguish that as well. That that uh, And then there's been many books written about, uh, you know, the, the, the Old Testament God, Yahweh. Uh, and you do a great job showing the etymology of Yahweh with Baal, with Zeus, um, all meaning to fright, to terrify. Um, and when you 
when you do a reading of the Old Testament and you start to get a sketch of Yahweh, um, you know, you start to get that that he's, you know, he Yahweh in the, the words of, of Yahweh, he's a vindictive and jealous God. And when you start to add up the deeds in the Old Testament of this entity, you see that um, his he often turns violently murderous. Infidelity is sanctioned with death. Um, it starts to look more like a uh, geopolitical uh, territorial expansion by a warlord than any kind of deity that has humanity's best interests. In fact, Yahweh requires uh, the sacrifice of firstborn boys at eight days old. Uh, and, uh, and the only people that are spared in these cities that are destroyed are the virgins. And it just does not. And then to, you know, so for a Gnostic, that is all the proof you need that this entity is not pro-humanity and is an imposter deity uh, that the priesthood, the, the uh, Zadikim priesthood sort of cooked up this story that this was an elevated being. Well, uh, for Gnostics, Yahweh is a off-planet, basically warlord, and, um, and the description fits that. And so, I, you know, I have, I have Christian listeners and people that I'm related to that this is just, you know, why are you going there? But it's just like as a Gnostic, I'm like, well, you know, here I get this guest on who's written about it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. I know that, that you, you speak of the human path and we can maybe talk about that in just a bit. But just um, did you do a deep dive into Yahweh and and Zeus and all of these sort of terrifying, frightening uh, entities that have been labeled gods with a lowercase g, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, what what is your take? How did you come to terms with that? For me, you know, I was raised um, loosely as a Catholic, so there was a, a reverence for a cosmic God, but I, I, I had no idea that the Old Testament was such a contentious landscape in terms of myth until I started to get into Gnosticism. And I started to say, what are they talking about? Is this blasphemy? No, wait a minute. This is starting to make a lot of sense. So that's a, I'm giving you a lot and we're going far and wide on that, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. How did you arrive at maybe questioning, you know, the, the scriptures that are supposedly sacred, uh, but not everybody takes them that way, right? Yeah, well, I was, I was raised Catholic rather strictly mm -hmm. and, um, you know, went to old girl Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, I got a good education, <laughs> yeah. but, um, and I got, yeah, I got seeped into, in, in all the, you know, all the mythology and stuff, which then enabled me to appreciate the beautiful Renaissance art all over Europe. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's a good side to all of that. But as a kid, I just found it boring. Mm -hmm. It didn't, I couldn't relate to it. Right. And um, when eventually I rebelled at the age of nine or 10, and I said, it's boring, I don't want to go anymore, I don't want to hear. And uh, I was told by my very strict father that uh, you must continue going to mass out of discipline. And then the penny dropped for me. I said to myself, discipline? I've been told all the time that you have to have personal faith. Yeah. And you're telling me I have to go out of discipline? 
that was the end of that for me. You know, I, I went on with the Catholic education, you know, that I was, I couldn't get out of. Um, but then, uh, you know, since I, my family was a family that was for professional reasons had to be moving every three years. So keeping the continuity of a very strict form of education is kind of difficult when you're moving all the time, you're learning new languages. Mm -hmm. so from a very early age, you know, I've been multilingual. Consequently, my mind has been open to all sorts of other realities. I found out about the Gnostics very, very late, actually. Um, but, you know, the things that we were told about in the Bible, be it the Old or the New Testament, nothing made sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, I just left that aside. And um, as an anthropologist, um, well, as a singer in you know, in my, let's say my thirties, I was into ancient church chant. So I was interested in, you know, the, the original authenticity of the, of the faith, of the sound, of the architecture that mm. went together. Yep. And then eventually that wasn't enough. So I started going East and I landed in India and in India I was, faced with a completely, completely different, um, you know, attitude to what we call religion, mm -hmm. which I wouldn't even call religion, you know, in the East. It's much more, apart from the more recent institutionalization of people's faith into what we would call religion, basically it's all about the life path of each individual person. So they codify it with karma and dharma, but dharma is not, it's translated religion, but it is not religion. Mm -hmm. Dharma is basically, you know, carrying out your life in, uh, in, in, in harmony with, uh, with, with the harmony of, of the universe, mm -hmm. um, doing what is right, basically. So, you know, until not that long ago, I was just going from one question to another. And um, I encountered the Gnostics through the work of John Lash. Yeah, me too. Perhaps 10, ten years ago. Yep. And I mean, you know, that was brilliant. Yep, for sure. And, um, you know, but then living in the East, I didn't particularly, you know, I had enough on my plate dealing with, uh, the, you know, the Indian stuff and then the Southeast Asian stuff. So it's interesting for me to look at the Gnostics through the lens of the esoteric grassroots tradition in which I was initiated in India, mm -hmm. because they seem to me to be the other end of the spectrum. Now, they are pretty extreme in terms of having no gods, no religion, no priest. Emphatically, they cultivate their direct, direct relationship, not to what we call God or the Gnostics call God, but yep. to the, you know, the, 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 the higher self, the reality of the essence of who you are. Um, and that to me is a translation of what in the Gnostics is the higher God. Mm -hmm. above the imposter god yep you see we i think that in the west we have been accultured into seeing that our souls our you know the, the subtle life 
of who we are when we're not, well, where, when we are on earth and, and beyond, it's all under the custodianship of a big God out there with a capital G. Yeah. Um, instead of it being our own business. Right. Like the salvation of our own souls, doing the right thing, doing whatever it is that we're supposed to do on this earth, a finding out what it is and then doing it in the East. It's not in the hands of the gods. The gods are going to put, they're going to throw obstacles at you. Mm -hmm. They're going to give you some help, some blessings, but basically it's your job. Yeah. Yeah. That's the big difference that I see with agnostics who needed because of the influence, you know, ever since Mesopotamian times and perhaps before that, but we don't have the records, mm-hmm. there's been the, 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 um, the very, very, very strong integration in the West and in the Near East um, of the concept of the high God who basically runs everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, I also read John Lamb Lash and, and a bunch of other Gnostic stuff a few years back. And it was, there was something about like, I think, you know, I hear what you're saying about like, no, no gods uh, or maybe a, a, a cosmic God, uh, you know, capital G. I, I always gravitated towards the transcendent that there was some, there was some, I always sensed that there was some entities that were, that were helping us, helping us come uh, to know who we are. I was, I could sense it in, in a lot of different ways. There was a lot of synchronicity. There seemed to be um, things that were, that were helping humanity that I could see. Um, and when I read the, the Gnostic myth of Sophia, the fallen goddess Sophia, and when I started to really dig into that and I saw, wow, this is a myth, a cosmology where, a, fa- a goddess had fallen out of the pleroma through uh, sort of an error of her own that she was going to, she dreamt of partnering with the Anthropos, a race that would be her divine partner. And she would not partner at the time with Christos, which was her natural um, divine partner. So it brought Christ into the storyline in an interesting way for me. Um, and also the myth says that our soul journey, our return to these kind of higher dimensions is tied to Sophia, is tied to the goddess, is tied to the earth. And that also kind of resonated with me. There was something about this kind of fall and return. And also Sophia gave birth to the imposter, to the demiurge through, through her, you know, her fall. Um, there was a demiurge birth and archons, what they called archons, and they would try to restrict uh, the human anthropos. They were jealous of the human anthropos because they had the immortal spark of Sophia and they would try their best to make sure that the humans would not realize this. And so a lot of the religion, the three Abrahamic religions are really a cover to put the divine spark over there. In other words, we're, you, have, you and I have original sin, according to the three Abrahamic religions, and we must you know, pray that somehow we'll be redeemed by this Redeemer, Christ. Um, and the Gnostics 
um, said that is a that is a Krivda interpretation of the cosmic event that was the fall of a goddess and that she would return her dream of partnering with the Anthropos would come true as the Anthropos awakened to their own divinity and their own immortality and their own partnership and, and part in the story. And so there was so many elements of that that resonated with me because I could, I don't think I could ever get over to where there's nothing else. You know, there's not a, a cosmic higher being that's that we're moving towards in a way. It just doesn't, I just can't get there. I can't, it feels like I have to make my myth smaller and I'm not willing to do that. And so I don't know how all that resonates with you. Um, but I, that's, that was sparked by John Lamb Lash. And then just my own, like you did kind of piecing things together and go, what is happening here? What, what is, what is moving? Why does it seem like things are moving? The soul seems to be moving in accelerated fashion right now. Wow, you pack a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't talk this with very many people. I feel like I could talk about it with you, so I want to. So <laughs> Okay, great, great, great. Yeah, well, let's I'll take it backwards because okay. you mentioned the whole business of original sin. Yes. And this is really important and to my I mean in the analysis that I've been able to put together in this book, original sin and monetary debt mm. are two they're the two sides of the same coin basically. Because the advent of the invention of debt as an economic tool of the priesthood happened in the shadow of the temples in Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. Um, the invention of uh, false money was happened there. And it's there that debt was constructed as a as the major tool to enslave the majority for the profit of the minority and for the greater God, the glory of whatever gods, terrifying gods were were ruling at the time. Mm -hmm. And so this is carried through. If we understand original sin as a spiritualistic repackaging of monetary debt, Mm. things become much, much clearer. Now, we don't need to go into the analysis of this because it would, you know, that would take another bunch of time and it's in the book anyway so now going back into the 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 myth of sophia Mm -hmm. you know when john lamlash says there is no better myth for humanity to run with now considering all the falsehoods that we've been religiously and so-called pseudo-spiritually fed and brainwashed into and violently brainwashed into Embracing the myth, the myth of Sophia together with Anthropos is the most exciting, empowering myth that we can give back to ourselves now. And I wholeheartedly agree with him, you know, on that on that particular point of inspiration. Yeah. My sense is, well, for sure, the Gnostics, they knew, you know, and I assume that the Gnostics are a particular um crystallization of much more ancient beliefs yeah and much more ancient wisdom knowledge where there was a balance between you know the masculine and the and the masculine and the feminine principle mm-hmm. you know where people knew that you know it those two worked in 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 complementarity mm-hmm. uh 
And, you know, I go to India also for my sources on that, but let's not go into India quite not quite yet. Mm-hmm. So the business of Sophia, I've got a problem. And I think there is a real problem with calling her a goddess mm-hmm. in the same way as, I mean, the imposter God to me is a definition of God, of the word God. Mm-hmm. We can't possibly use the same word, trying to make a, a distinction through capital letters and lowercase letters. Okay. To, you know, to, it's just, the confusion is embedded in the word. If, yeah. if we have to play that kind of mind game and yeah. explain, no, no, right now I'm referring to, to, you know, a God with a small G and, but then I was talking about a God with a capital G. It's just, it's word spell. Yep. Okay, so Sophia, she's an eon up in the Pleroma. Mm-hmm. She's not a goddess. Yeah. And so, you know, our translations now with the concepts that we have can be very misleading about use the word God in inverted commas or with qualifiers. Yeah. Um, or basically, you know, I prefer to talk about these great entities as principles. You know, for me, there's the feminine principle. It's not the divine feminine. It's the feminine principle. Um, And the same for the masculine principle. And to me, what we call Sophia is an emanation of the great feminine principle Mm. in the same way as the Anthropos is an emanation of the great masculine principle. I see. So there's been too much uh, word spell with the word God and goddess and even divine, right? Perhaps. Well, divine is divine comes from Deus, which is the what we translate as God in English. So it's in English, it's perhaps more neutral. But since I also speak French and Italian, the word divine gives me an itch. But anyway, going back to the story. Now, Sophia, she's called a fallen goddess. We're dealing with the Gnostic population who want to preserve some kind of balance between the masculine and the feminine, but they're still living in a very patriarchal society. And, you know, most of their so-called gospels or scriptures or whatever, their writings basically, were produced by men. Mm-hmm. Now, they had, they had to take this feminine principle, as I'm understanding it, and they had to give it explanatory value and potency in a world where the feminine was not terribly powerful. Right. And so why would she be called a fallen goddess? You know, that implies a fault on of her, on her part. And then, you know, the fact that the demiurge is generated because of her tumble into, you know, the world of matter. If we look at this cosmologically, mm-hmm. you know, you can very well imagine something in the great etheric realms of the universe that is activated and starts producing, you know, whatever, comets, Birkeland currents, what have you, you know, from yeah. the electric universe or whatever. Yeah. And travels across the universe in this particular and you know lands in this particular corner of one one of the um one of the galactic arms yep um i would imagine that 
she didn't land here just by chance. There has to be something about this particular corner of the universe. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's just an assumption of mine. Right. And But I'm not buying the fact that she is fallen. Mm. It tumbled out. Okay, I mean, you can imagine those great sort of currents of energy, you know, careening through the universe. Right. Well, I can imagine this eon gradually taking an embodiment, first mm-hmm. as an energetic current, and then encountering all sorts of cosmic dust, you know, accruing more stuff, and then... You know, having the power to manifest something that ends up being a core star with a planetary coating around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the core of the planet is something of a star. Yep. Uh, it's a, probably also a crystalline structure. We don't yet completely know, but mm-hmm. there are theories coming up that, you know, give all sorts of interesting explanations. So that's the cosmological, you know, um, gaze on the so-called fallen goddess. Um, And then the fact that she came out of the Pleroma without her male consort. um, My sense is that the Makanthropos, the great Anthropos up Mm -hmm. there, um, they had this plan together. You know, I mean, we have to imagine in in our human terms, how two eons make make a plan, which, okay, I mean, uh, how do they make a plan when they up there? You know, I, 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 I can't imagine. But basically, so they, let's imagine that they have a plan for this incredible thing with the feminine principle embodied as a planet mm-hmm. and the masculine principle embodied as humans, both male and female, mm-hmm. or perhaps not male and female originally. Perhaps because there are lots of myths that think that we originated as um, basically not not androgynes, but as one single non-sexed entity. Mm-hmm. You know, androgyne comes from putting together the man and the woman, the male and the female. So that's an ex post kind of word. So we would have had an original non-sexed identity as anthropos. Or we were originally, you know, sexed as male and female. But we bring in the anthropos principle, the masculine principle. And the business of Christ, in my reading, and you've read the book, and I very much like the work of this historian called Esposito, um, who has analyzed the texts very rigorously and very non-emotionally and non-spiritually to extract the points that converge in all the different, um, the apocryphals and the canonical gospels and in other writings of the time. And he puts together the different elements of a very human life of Jesus as a man, as a human. And he does these extraordinary things in spite of his lowly bastard birth, because his mother was plausibly raped by a Roman soldier, as was commonplace in in those days. But he manifests a human spirit of claiming his dignity, his full dignity as a human, becoming a predicator of the liberation of Israel. It's in spiritual garb, but his main goal is is a socio-political restoration of the nation of Israel with 
people who are free and have their dignity. Mm -hmm. Now he gives, Esposito gives this reading, which gives us a very human profile for Jesus, who is then thereafter recuperated by the church to be deified and turned into the perpetual martyr for the perpetual redemption of our perpetual sin and debt. Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm reading in this thing, Jesus manifesting the human principle, the anthropos. Consequently, I am reading Jesus as the Christ, manifesting the Christ principle as the same as the anthropos principle. Mm -hmm. But the new version, the, the version of the anthropos that has been um, ill-treated and thus matured in the cauldron of the demiurge. Yeah doing his crappy deeds to Sophia and to the Anthropos out of envy and out of hubris. Um, so I don't know whether that makes it clear, but to me, Anthropos, Christos up there as the eon and the Christ in, well, attributed to Jesus or yeah. manifested by Jesus is basically the restoration, the first restoration on earth of the Ionic Anthropos principle for us to take on board. And that was very, very dangerous for the church. They had to change the, to, you know, mystify, mythify, spiritualize the story so that we wouldn't go back to the Anthropos. Yeah, I, I remember, it's been a while since I've read John, Lash, John Lash's book, but I remember him wrestling with this very thing, talking about the Aeon, uh, Christos, uh, Christ, as a principle here, but then also um, how he kind of distinguished between Jesus and Christ. He kind of separated them that way and said one was used by the Zadokim priesthood as to create this kind of redeemer complex. So uh, humans would not look inside or to the biological planet at all for any kind of spiritual renewal or upliftment that they would constantly look for um, the, the stories of the priests as as a way of saying, well, you know, uh, it's over there. I have to I have to obey these things, or I've got to walk this way to sort of get into heaven, or to you know to be elevated into the next um, you know the next thing. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of my interview with Anna Retort. You can find her book, Krivda, Godtrix Against the Matrix, at www.annaretortbooks.com. That's spelled E-N-N-A-R-E-I-T-T-O-R-T, books.com. We also mentioned John Lash, and his book on Gnosis and Gnosticism and the Fallen Goddess Myth is a classic, and it's titled Not in His Image and can be easily found on Amazon. Part two of my interview with Anna, we will cover some more interesting terrain, including ETs, more about the Aeon Sophia, and a different take on the Russia-Ukraine situation as Anna used to live in Russia and has a perspective not heard in the Western media. Imagine that. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate your attention. 
If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Man, remember that the story of your life is not yet all told. I'm Tony Rezac, and thank you for listening to Base Camp for Men. <laughs>